He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And as she picks the petals and they fall to the ground, her heart is conflicted because she's interested and she wants to know if he is too. And if we're honest, we often feel that way, don't we? About God's love toward us. Does He love us one minute and feel indifferent toward us the next? As the old hymn writer Joseph Hart said, how may we our hearts assure? Where do we go for the answer? Is it out in the field with daisies? Is it in the recesses of the things that we hope for? Where do we find the answer to know whether or not we are objects of His love? Some, as we said last week, are very confident that they belong to God, but may be confidently wrong. Some are so deceived, so self-deceived, that God loves them, that they don't tell other human beings that, they actually tell God that. Many, Jesus said, will say to me on that day. How deceived do you have to be to tell Jesus that you belong to Jesus when Jesus said He'll say to those people, depart from me, I never knew you. So we can be very confident and very wrong. We can be very unsure and very saved. I invite you to the little letter of 2 John, probably less than one page long, in the printing of your Bible, it's 13 verses. And in those 13 verses is a stick of dynamite packing power. Really, two of the biggest stars in the solar system of God's love form a constellation that every Christian needs to gaze upon. And this little letter shows us not a daisy that we pluck, but a God, the God, whose love is solid and sure. Second John chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There are no chapters. Uh, 2 John, verse 1. We'll read the entirety of this little letter and then try to unpack the portions of it. Hear the Word of the living God. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. This is the Word of the Lord. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but you, that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, 
do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. The Word of the Lord. Meet me at the throne of grace again as we ask for God's blessing. We consider these verses. Just going to be silent for a moment and ask you to prayerfully ask the Lord to minister to you. Now would you take a moment and pray also for someone near to you or someone else gathered among us? Maybe just immediately beside you or elsewhere in the room? The Lord will lay on your heart who you should pray for. Pray for someone that the Lord would bless them and speak to them. Father, You've heard our private cry. Now we come collectively before You as one voice and we're asking, just as we sang a moment ago, speak, O Lord. Cause Your truth to be planted deep in us. Lord, I pray now for those who have tasted of the grace of Jesus, but like Hebrews teaches, they have drifted away. Those whose hearts once warm now are cold and indifferent. Can't remember the last time they've had an enthralling time of private worship or been moved upon by Your Spirit in corporate worship. I pray for these brothers and sisters especially today, Lord. That You would break through the hardness and the callousness. That You would penetrate with the light of the Gospel the darkness of the world that's crept upon them. And we pray, Lord, that these siblings in Jesus would be warmed by the fire of Your love today. And God, we pray for those who by Your grace have been walking in the light. And not perfectly, but obediently and by the Spirit have been following after the way of Your commandments. And we pray, Lord, that You would only intensify the work of Your grace. That deeper and further in to the love that You have for Your people, that today they would be drawn, wooed and beckoned by Your own call and Your voice through Your Word. Lord, we also pray for those who won't pray for themselves. Those among us who are lost, if today they died, they would perish. Separated from Your favor and Your smile. Bearing Your wrath in a very real place called hell. God, we pray today that You would save the lost. That You would show them their perilous condition, but more than trembling under the penalty of their sin, which is certainly a cause for trembling, we ask that You would show them the beauty of the Redeemer. And that they would be awakened out of the stupor of their delusion and deadness. You would make them alive. Draw them to Christ. Show them His saving power and wonder. Show them His worth. 
We ask that You would do that for all of us, Lord. That we would see the worth of Christ. Whatever You see in Jesus, show us Him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that You would do this. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the book of 2 John, though it's, long, uh, though it's short, is long in, uh, in power. Is rich in application. 13 verses, I mentioned as a little stick of dynamite, is seeking to say to us by the Holy Spirit's inspiration that God loves us. And you might say, yeah, but what's new? Of course He loves me. If you've become so familiar with the love of God that you actually don't even know it, then enter 2 John as such a palpable, powerful help. An antidote to warm you, as I prayed just a moment ago, again by the fire of His love. Instead of a, of course He loves me, why wouldn't He love me? Second John would show you how He loves you. And that you can know with certainty that He loves you. The first thing we want to consider comes from the first four verses, and it's the point that the love of God accords, harmonizes, with the truth of Jesus. It's the title of the sermon, and it's the first point of the sermon. The love of God accords with the truth of Jesus. Say it the other way. Without the truth, you cannot know for sure that God loves you. Say that another way. Many who are sure that God loves them, who do not know the truth of His Word, may be very confident, but they cannot be biblically sure. Positively, the love of God accords with the truth of Jesus. Where do I get this? Five times in the first four verses, the Greek word for truth, aletheia, is used. Verse 1, whom I love in truth. The end of verse 1, but also all who know the truth. Verse true, verse, verse 2, <laughs> verse true. Verse 2, for the sake of the truth. The end of verse 3. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Five times in four verses, truth. There's a lot to be said in these verses about love as well. Or the effect of the love of God, which is fellowship with God Himself. That's radiantly clear, evidently clear in verse 3. The point that John is writing about now is an aged believer, having walked with Christ probably as a teenager during the days of his apostleship when Christ called him during his earthly life and ministry, having seen the crucified Jesus. He was the only apostle left, you remember, at the cross. All the others had abandoned, really, uh, in, their, in their responsibility to follow Jesus to the end. Peter had gone fishing, but there's John with Mary. He watches Jesus suffer. He hears Jesus cry out, it is finished. He's one of the first two men to make it to the empty tomb. He runs and races, we're told in the Gospels, to the tomb where Jesus once dead had been laying and now risen in victorious power. He goes in, He finds the linen cloths all folded up. He encounters the risen Jesus. 
Multiple revelations we find in the Gospels where John is present when the risen Jesus is manifested. For years now, following the ascension of Christ, which He also witnessed. There on the day of Pentecost, standing outside the temple in Jerusalem when the lame man is healed and begins to praise God, John now having walked with Jesus all these years, having served the Lord faithfully, ministered the Gospel to the lost, evangelized, seen genuine conversions, churches established. He had pastored several of them, probably writing this little letter from Ephesus to another local church. An old man. He wants the people of God to know for sure that God loves them. And how can we know His love, as our point says, accords with the truth of Jesus. John knew that Jesus knew what He was talking about. When Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the doubting Jews, if you knew the truth, the truth would set you free. How does truth set us free? Because it serves as a solid ground of our hope that God who in His holiness has been offended by our sin and we can't change that fact. God is reconciled. God can remain God and become a friend of a sinner like Jordan Thomas without compromising His glory or diminishing His deity or setting aside His holiness. God can become my friend not because He's soft on my sin, but because He is reconciled. That in His holiness, in His mercy, As the psalm says, in truth and peace, God has kissed at the cross and He's reconciled in His mighty heart to love me. My hope can be set on the solid ground that God loves me when my hope is set on the truth that God has revealed about Himself. That's the exact opposite of what we hear a lot about today even in church circles, and from church people, and from churchy talk. Christianese, little religious language and phrases. It's almost like little fortune cookie Christianity. Little bumper sticker kind of talk. I've just said to you the, the exact opposite of what we often hear. The opposite would be saying that our hope serves as the ground of our confidence that God loves us. Let me put them together. I said truth serves as the solid ground of our hope that God is reconciled in His mighty heart to love me. Truth is the ground. What we hear a lot of today is that our hope is the ground of our confidence that God loves us. I hope that you hope that God loves you. And I hope that your hope is not the ground of your confidence that God loves you. Every religion you can think of, where our brother Jeff is serving and so many other places in the world, our sisters on the second row come from a land where Hinduism runs rampant. Jeff in a place where Islam dominates the landscape. East Asian Buddhism Central Western United States Mormonism. All the cults, all the cults, hope 
to be among the redeemed. If you ask honest adherents to false religions if they will be in heaven when they die, no matter how devout they are, whether they've become the imam in the mosque or the priest in the Hindu temple, if they're consistent with their religious construct, the Jehovah's Witness will tell you on your doorstep, if they're honest, I hope so. Are you going to heaven when you die? I hope so. But they're out of step in their deep hope with the truth of God, but unfortunately, they're not too dissonant, not too disconnected, not too different from a lot of professing Christians. Maybe even genuine Christians. There are a lot among the Christian faith, some genuine converts, some not, God knows, but there are many of them among the Christian faith who hope that they're on their way to heaven. As deeply as they may hope to belong to God, the truth is stubborn. Not only will God not bend His standards, He cannot. It's impossible for God to tell a lie. Hebrews chapter 6. God cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy chapter 2. So the psalmist prays repeatedly things like this. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Psalm 104. Let the Lord be glad in all His works. In 2 John, we learn in this opening passage, as I want to draw your attention to specifically, that God's love and God's truth are Siamese twins. They're conjoined twins. But not only conjoined twins, they share the same vital organs. No surgeon on earth can separate the love of God and the truth of God, these twin graces, without killing both of them. You cannot be loved by God apart from His truth. And you cannot embrace the truth of God by faith without knowing His love. This is the way it works in the first four verses. Let's read them again. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Hopefully you can see the theme emerging clearly. The focus of 2 John, the ESV Study Bible, summarizes this way. The focus of 2 John is living in the love of God in accordance with the truth of Jesus Christ. One more time. Living in the love of God in accordance with the truth of Jesus Christ. Now let's meddle in your business just a little bit, shall we? The Lord Jesus Christ prayed earnestly on the eve before His crucifixion. And of all His wonderful requests, there are ten of them in John chapter 17. Ten specific requests for you, for Himself, for His disciples. And on that hallowed harrowing moment under the shadow of the cross just before He crosses the Kidron Valley and goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood in earnest prayer with Your redemption in view, this is what Jesus prayed. Father, 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. This is the way Jesus prays for His people. The reason Jesus would pray such a thing, of all the trillions of things that the unlimited mind of the second person of the Trinity could have thought to pray for you, this He prays for you because He knows that there's no other way for you to be confident of God's love for you unless you know His love according to His Word. No other way. I'm going to say again what I said earlier. Many of you, most of you, all of you, may be totally confident that God loves you. Jesus would say to you, according to what standard? What is the ground? Where is your confidence? Some of you may be less confident. You may get tossed back and forth with uncertainty and be solidly saved. But again, where can your feet land? What's the ground of your hope? Dearly beloved, are you a truth person? Are you a truth person? This is why John wrote in his next letter, 3 John, it's next week's sermon, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Why would that give John such joy? Because those who walk in the truth know on the ground that God has given, the solid foundation that God has laid, that He loves us. The love of God accords with the truth of Jesus. So dearly beloved, are you a truth person? I can ask you the same question other ways. And I I mean to sincerely ask you this. I'm asking you to ask yourself. If I could step inside your heart and shine a spotlight on every corner of it, I would do it. Are you a truth person? The same question from another angle. I could just as easily ask, are you increasingly convinced of? Are you basking in the love of God for you in Christ? All who've tasted from the fountain of God's love yearn for deeper gulps of the grace of Jesus. Where do they find that fresh water? The truth of His Word. The fountain of Christ. The living water of Jesus. That's what verse 3 is about. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. How will it be with us? In truth and love. So as I said, meddling in your business and mine too, how is your relationship with truth? How's your relationship with truth? How is your relationship with God's Word? Now I'm going to risk breaking my arm, patting ourselves on the back, but then you'll see why I do it in a moment. How is your relationship with the truth? I mean for you to ask yourself that question. You already know the answer before I go through the little Rolodex of my list of questions opportunities that are available to you? How is your relationship with truth? Around here, every fall, we pick a different book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse. Five days a week, the members of our church are afforded the opportunity, whether they take advantage of it or not, it's between them and the Lord, but they're afforded the opportunity to be be guided day by day, five days a week, 12 weeks, 
through a book of the Bible. Right now, we're in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. Our small groups meet every week. And we seek to unpack and apply the truth of God. And you may say, I'm speaking specifically to members of the church at this point, but not exclusively, because this would obviously apply to anybody. You may say, that teleos study is not my thing. To which I would say, okay, no problem. There's no compulsory Bible study around here. But then I would start asking other questions. What about sweeter than honey? Many of us have very, very busy lives. We can all make excuses about why we don't have enough time, but you have as much hours in your day as the person sitting beside you, and they have as many hours in their day as I have in mine. And God has graciously given you enough time to do what He's called you to do. To be who He's called you to be. So sweeter than honey, I mentioned a moment ago, is not a one-year read-through-the-Bible plan. It's a two-year read-through-the-Bible plan because to be honest, we got a lot of stay-at-home moms with a lot of kids and there's a lot of busyness and we got men working crazy hours around this church faithfully. The Old Testament Joseph, their ethic is get up, go to work, do what God's called them to do, and God is blessing them. I love that. So we stretched a one-year plan into two. We wrote our own Bible reading plan. We call it Sweeter Than Honey because Psalm 19 says the Word of God is to the Christian sweeter than the drippings off the honeycomb. And so we have a two-year Bible reading plan. But some of you may say, like the teleos thing, I don't really like structured reading plans. It's just not the way I tick. It's not the way I'm wired. To which I would say, that's fine. Hunter introduced another catechism today. Through the children to us all, accompanied by a memory verse in Matthew chapter 6. And you may say, I just don't learn that way. Structured, systematic, kind of question and answer. To which I would say, that's fine. Nobody has to do tasting the truth. That's okay, and I genuinely mean that without a bait and switch. No reverse psychology. Legit, God is my witness. If teleos isn't your thing, that's fine. If sweeter than honey is not, is not your thing, that is okay. If catechizing is not the way you do it, that is cool with me too. You may be four years old or seven years old. You may be in fifth grade or sixth grade. And the little children's worship guide that we've distributed even this morning doesn't really help you as much as it might help another child. To which I would also say to you, that is alright if that's not your thing. Our teenagers, 7th grade through 12th grade, may say that searching Scripture that way two or three times a month in that kind of setting, studying the doctrine of God and of sin, Studying soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, very carefully from beginning to end in the Bible, or as you're doing right now in your high school groups, the doctrine of biblical ethics, or in the junior high group, what is the Gospel? Maybe that's not your way of, of mining the truth. To which I also say, no problem. That's okay. None of that is compulsory The rest of you may say that scriptural call to worship from Chronicles this morning. It doesn't really light my fire because when I come into church, I'm not quite engaged with that. Some of you may say the study that we did last fall in the Gospel of John or two falls prior for 
two years the book of Genesis, or a year before that the Gospel of Matthew, or a year before that the book of Acts, but we actually did that for two years, or before that the book of Isaiah, you may say that's just not the way I learn. That's not the way I do Bible study. To which I say that is okay. That's fine. You don't have to fit anybody else's mold. You don't have to do any of those things that I just mentioned to immerse yourself in the truth of God's Word. We're just trying to set you up for success. If you live your life in the middle of the train track of the grace of God, meaning you just show up with the Bible to meet God, however that happens, in our context, We would like to think and we certainly pray that if you just attended your grace group, not all of them are going to be Mount Carmel. Fire's not coming down from heaven. Your heart's not going to be lit ablaze with more love to Jesus just because you go to your grace group. For ten in a row, it may be boring to you. But eventually, if you'll just live your life in that train track, you're probably going to get run over by the grace of God because it comes, He comes on the basis of truth. This sermon is a C- at best. It's probably worse than that. (laughs) We're not saying we have the most electrifying way of doing things, but we are absolutely sure that the electric current of the grace of God in Jesus Christ flows through and only through the conduit of His truth. So we pray through the Bible. We preach through the Bible. We sing the truths that we find in the Bible. We're constantly trying to figure out ways that we can set you up and me up to get run over by the love of God by setting your life right in the middle of the train tracks of the locomotive of His truth. And you can say all day long, that's just not the way I learn. Fine. Find a way. Get on that train. Get in those tracks. Get run over by God's grace because I'm telling you, there's no other way that you can know He loves you. And if you know He loves you, there's no other way that you would live your life than by tracking down more of the truth that is to be found in the God who loves you so. Verse 9, John emphasizes that the fellowship that we have with God is reserved for a particular subset of humanity. That is those who live in His teaching. The New American Standard translates it, abide. Such a person will be in great company if you abide, verse 9, in the teaching of God. Who are you in company with? The Father and the Son. Who's in company with the Father and the Son? Those who live... In the truth. This isn't our vacation home. We don't go here in the summer for a week. This is our life. This is our bread. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, I found your words and I ate them because they are a joy and a delight to my heart. The psalmist said, this book to me is more valuable than gold. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every single word that comes out of the mouth of God, that's what verse 9 is about. That's what verses 1-4 to is about. The love of God accords with the truth of Jesus. The second is more invasive. 
That is the love of God. Yes, it accords with the truth of Jesus. Nobody gets to be confident by God's standard that God loves them unless they're walking in the truth. But the second is more invasive because it is this. The love of God is affirmed in obedience to Christ. God doesn't tell disobedient people affirming things about His love for them. That's why those who are living in sin should not take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 says when you do that, God might kill you. Some sleep because they wouldn't examine themselves. They trifle with the Gospel. They trample underfoot the blood of Christ. They play fast and loose with sin. They're willing to live in sin and pretend like they're in fellowship with God. That's a dangerous place to be and I'm so glad one of the brothers read Leviticus 9 and 10 about Nadab and Abihu. The love of God is affirmed in obedience to Christ. It's in verse 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Walking in truth. Walking in truth. Do you hear the ongoing? Do you hear the marathon, not the sprint? Do you hear the one step after another step? Not going back into the pasture behind Grandpa's barn to pluck the daisy to figure out if God loves you, but every day, every moment, living your life. Verse 9, abiding in the teaching of God. Verse 4, walking in the truth. This is a life of obedience. This is the aroma of Christ. This is somebody who is seeking to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus. To have their mind trained and transformed by the truth of God's Word. We don't live in political ideologies and stupid nonsense that comes from a generation before us. We plant our feet in the eternal God and in His Word. And John says, I'm very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. Why would that make John glad? Because verse 4 says, God commanded it. It makes us happy when we see other believers obeying our God. The little letter of 2 John was written to a local church. That's what some of your children, verse 4, or the Chosen lady, verse 1. It's referencing a local church. It's also written from a local church. Verse 13 says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. So when verse 4 says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, it's talking about some of the people in the church. It made John's heart joyful to know that in the context of the local church, there were some consistently as the rule and not the exception, walking in the truth. The point that John is seeking to get across to them is that the love of God, number one, accords with the truth of Jesus, but it also is affirmed as you obey Christ. Another way to put it is the Holy Spirit's really good at His job. He gives the assurance of eternal life. That was last Sunday's sermon from 1 John. But as good as He is at His job, he gives assurance of eternal life. He will never give assurance of salvation to a disobedient Christian. That's why I said earlier something quite oxymoronic. It shouldn't make sense to you. You should have said, no, stop right there, preacher. 
Because said some of you are very confident that God loves you, even though your confidence is not grounded in His truth. If I took that a step further and said, there probably are some among us living in sin and they know it. And they're still sure that God loves them. But the Holy Spirit's not the one making you sure because He never assures a person living in sin that they are loved by God. He's good at His job. He doesn't give assurance of salvation to disobedient Christians. That's why John was happy that some of the children in the church are walking in the truth as God has commanded. If you're living in sin and you're sure you're saved, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit is not the one giving you that assurance. Verse 4 speaks of an ongoing practice. Present tense. Walking in the truth. This makes John verse 4 very glad. But John's joy is not the ground reason that the local church takes tribes takes strides forward toward God. In other words, if I stood up here every Sunday and said, it will make me really, really, really happy if you love Jesus, that would be true. But that's not the reason that you should love Jesus. The ground of their obedience was not John's joy. Verse 4 says, they are, obe they are obedient to walk in the truth because we have received commandment to do so from the Father. Do you see the connections? John's joy is elevated as God's people obey God's Word. Can you say that about yourself? Can you say that you have experienced the joy that comes from seeing another brother or sister obey God? Those in the church who are willing to walk in the truth, the New American Standard says some of the children. Some of your children. We're doing so. And they were doing so because they were already rightly related to God in Christ. A quick commercial for tonight. We have a gospel class right here in this room at 5.30. It's going to be really the application of this morning's sermon. Enjoying Jesus in our affections. That's what Paul is, uh, pardon me, John is referring to in these verses. Verse 4. He gets joy as the children of God obey the commands of God. And they obey the commands of God because they're already rightly related to God in Christ. Not so that He will like them, because He already does love them. They therefore want to obey. What is clear in verse 4 is that the commandment to walk in the truth has an origin, a source. Namely, God the Father. Verse 4 says He's the one that gives the command to walk, to live in His truth. So can I say to you young people who are in a habitual pattern of disobedience to your parents, your fight is not with your parents. Your fight is with God. Or any of you adults who are living in disobedience to the commands of God, your argument's not with the church, those stuffy people with all the rules. It's with the God who made you and knows what's good for you and loves you enough to tell you not to destroy yourself. How many are there who are perfectly content to have a wordless life? Is that you? If the page of 2 John was not in your Bible, would your life be any different? 
whose consciences are confident that they are heaven-bound after this life while their minds are conformed to this world? They look more like a 21st century American ideology than they do New Testament Christianity in the ways that they think. How few are Romans 12 transformed in their mind by the influence of the Word of God? Are you training your brain to think God's thoughts after Him? Do you think less the way you used to think and more the way God thinks because you have rigorously pressed your mind into the mold of the Word of God? How damnably large is the percentage of the human race who suppose that they're going to one day skip down streets of gold in heaven who have so rarely walked down the cross-shaped hallways of God's Word written? How many professing Christians can tell you every detail about their favorite contemporary songs or sports teams or places they visited or experiences they've had and whose minds are saturated with information about so many things they could bore you to tears with all their factoids, but whose thoughts are not in the least taken captive to obedience to Christ. How banal, how hypnotizing are the illumined screens that we carry around in our pockets and sit on our shelves in our desk and we scroll down the screens of social media and we're taking into our minds deeper, deeper, deeper thoughts, taking us deeper, deeper down into the rabbit holes of human division and divisiveness and hatred and how precious few, I'm serious, how precious few minds, how precious few hearts are captivated with the truth to the point that they want to dwell on it. To muse upon the God who spoke it. To think deeply God's own thoughts after God. And then to act upon whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's anything that's excellent, anything that's worthy of praise, oh, how few are there who want to dwell on these things. Philippians 4. Dear ones, we want to know the love of God. We should want to anyway. And if we do, good news. God has given us a rock-solid, positive source to know for sure. Immerse yourself in the Gospel love of God as revealed in His Word. And pray for empowering grace to walk in obedience to every command you read. That's verse 4. He loves you 1 to 3. He loves you in truth 1 to 3. We love you too 1 to 3. And you're walking in obedience to His commandments. Verse 4. Walking in the truth of God will assure our hearts of His love for us in Christ. And if you're in disobedience, you should not be sure if you're saved. Because the Holy Spirit would not affirm you. As you walk in obedience, the Holy Spirit brings assurance. In verse 1 and 2, John is tripping, tripping, up, tripping over himself to tell the church that he loves them. Verse 1, whom I love in the truth. Not only that he loves them, but all true Christians love them, true, love them also. Not only I, but also, verse 2, all who know the truth love you. Can you say that that's true of you? That like the Apostle John, because your heart is set on Christ and your mind is saturated in His Word, 
that you therefore love the brethren. 1 Peter 1 says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's what John is modeling. I encourage you, again, return tonight, 5.30, as we seek to apply these things. Meaning, apply the enoughness of Christ. Verse 5, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Finally, verses 7-11, through Not only does the love of God accord with the truth of Jesus, and not only is the love of God affirmed in our obedience, that's where we find affirmation from the Holy Spirit, but third and finally, the love of God does not tolerate false teaching, and the love of God does not tolerate false teachers. Verses 7-11. through Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Skipping to verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Verse 7 exposes the false teachers. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh. We're doing no one any favors by pretending that they're not a serious danger to the church if they disregard and deny and propagate lies about the essential truths of Christianity. If you deny the incarnation of Christ, that is that the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, stepped into time in human form, taking on true humanity through the womb of the Virgin Mary. If you deny that truth, not only are you a danger to the church, you are headed to the devil's hell. They deny, verse 7, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Notice what they're denying. They're denying, yes, the Incarnation, but that's the basis of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is absolutely necessary to the salvation of humanity. Last week we talked about how John was refuting an early emerging version of what later became full-blown Gnosticism that people said Jesus didn't have a real body. Flesh is evil, spirit is good. If you lose the humanity of Jesus, if He didn't really come in the flesh, you lose the Gospel entirely because as Paul wrote in Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. A man had to die for men, but a man had to be qualified to be the Redeemer of men. Therefore, the man that is qualified to be the Redeemer of men must himself be perfect. Having all the character qualities of the divine. To satisfy the wrath of God, to atone for the sin of man, He must be both God and man. If you lose the Garden of Eden, you lose the Gospel of Christ. Through one man, sin entered into the world. Through another man, the second Adam, Jesus of Nazareth, salvation came. Why did He take on flesh? Opposed to these false teachers. Hebrews 2 says, because the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same so that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels. He doesn't save the angels. But He gives help to the descendant of Abraham and He became a propitiation for our sins having taken on our flesh. 
Do you love when the Bible tells you exactly what to do with false teachers? I find this incredibly helpful. Verse 10, if anybody comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. I don't think it's talking about your street address where you receive mail. This is a church. And he's writing to these, this, this elect lady, this chosen lady, the children in the family, the church members. Don't receive somebody who denies the essentials of the faith. That means you can't come to church the first time, walk down the aisle at the end of the sermon, shake the preacher's hand, and in two minutes be presented as a member. That's foolish. That's absurd. We need to test one another to know if we all are believing and embracing the same Gospel, entrusting ourselves to the same Jesus. Don't receive such a one into your house. Do not give them a greeting. The greeting is brother or sister. Or verse 11, you're going to participate in their evil deeds. When the church compromises the truth, she loses everything. God is not changing. He's immutable. Even today, He's still writing Ichabod over the doorways of the gathering houses of people who call themselves His. The glory has departed from many a congregation who call themselves Christians. You may gather, John's saying, you may do a lot of religious stuff, but it will all be done devoid of the enlivening presence of God Himself and the Holy Spirit and of all His blessings if you entertain false teachers and false teaching. How will we know the truth unless we immerse ourselves in it? The people at the uh, U.S. Uh, Department of, of Treasury and developing our currency and printing our bills, our ones and fives and tens and fifties and hundreds and coins and making the mints and all, the way they discern the counterfeit is they constantly look at the authentic. To find the counterfeit, you've got to know what's real. So the application to the sermon, I believe, is simply this. Truly, look to the One who embodies truth. In John 1, we're told that Jesus is full of truth. Yes, grace, but also truth. One of the great I am statements concerning Jesus in John's Gospel is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're not interested in Jesus, you're not interested in truth. He is the truth. And God's people, when once distracted, are reminded that truth is in Christ. Our hearts turn again to Him. So looking to Jesus would not be a boring repetition application. It would be the delight of our souls. Not only look to Jesus, but live in the truth. As verse 4 is talking about, walk in the truth. Now, for you, it may not be Teleos Academy. Revelation 12-week Bible studies. That's fine. It may not be rooted in six years of 12 lessons that we think will teach you how to live in God's world, God's way. It may not be 150 catechisms sweeter than honey. It may not be scriptural calls to worship from Chronicles. It may not be sermons from 2 John. But if it's not something, you find something. Because you know as well as I do, you can go days, weeks, and months without cracking your Bible with a broken heart, getting on your face and saying, God, would You reveal Yourself to me? And if you're in that pattern, I love you enough to tell you, live in the truth. Come back home. Let God use this broken-hearted preacher and this broken sermon to poke you and prod you, not against you, but from behind you to press you on toward Christ. All who truly know God 
Long to know Him more in truth. Third, obey God's Word. If you lack assurance, try obedience. The Holy Spirit blesses those who obey. But how does He bless them? With the sweet aroma of His presence and His power. He's the reward. On the other hand, He steals assurance from those who don't walk in obedience. If you're living in sin, the most loving thing I could say to you is, repent. Return to the Lord and times of refreshing will come from His presence. This is what verse 4 is talking about. And then fourth and finally, not only truly look to Christ, He is the embodiment of truth. Not only live in the truth of God and His Word. Not only obey, but finally, stop drinking poison. April 25th, 1986, a nuclear disaster in Chernobyl, northern Ukrainian Soviet territory. You guys are familiar maybe with the nuclear reactor that uh, was, uh, went haywire. And if you live in Chernobyl today, and you exercise every day, you lift weights, you run, you do your cardio, if you eat nothing but organic and everything is clean, if you get plenty of sleep every night, you're still going to die of radiation poisoning. You know why? Because there's poison in the air. 1664, April, the bubonic plague swept through London. It killed 20% of the population in 20 months. 7,000 people died a week for 20 months. The doctors were 10 years prior to finding, through microscopic technology, bacteria. They didn't know that the bubonic plague was the bubonic plague. They didn't know it was bacteria carried on fleas that were living on rats. So they were prescribing things based on the wrong diagnosis. You know what they were doing? They were lighting fires all over the city because they thought that there was an airborne illness and the fires would take it away. They were telling people to smoke tobacco and do other things because it would help prevent them from catching this plague. 7,000 people uptown every single week dying in London. Now, there was a doctor who many thought didn't know what he was talking about, and he wasn't as credentialed as everybody else, but he came to the conclusion that it was a microorganism germ living on fleas, on rats, and so you know what they did? Eventually, through his poking and prodding and pleading and efforts, they burned the city down. The London fire to kill the rats. Because most of the people who were living in the most impoverished places where the rats tended to populate, the slums, were the ones dying the quickest. They burned the areas down. And guess what? The plague was checked. Sometimes you have to take extreme measures if you see an extreme need. And if you're in a situation where on the inside of your soul there's something worse happening than the plague, and there's something worse happening in your soul than would happen to you physically if you picked up and moved to Chernobyl tomorrow, if there's something worse happening in you, call. You want to know the worst thing God can do to you? Take His hand off your life. Give you over to yourself. We read about Nadab and Abihu. God struck them dead because they went into His presence uninvited with strange fire. We can read in the New Testament book of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit and the community of the saints. You want to know something worse than that? That's called final judgment. Something worse than that? 
is letting you live the rest of your life indifferent to God, that's called spiritual judgment. That's called taking His hand off of you. And if you've been cold for a long time, God brought me here to say to you, wake up. It's daytime. Seek Jesus. Turn your face to Christ. Get in your Bible. Lick your finger. Turn the pages. Start crying out. Why don't I feel like this, Jesus? Why don't I love You? Why am I attracted to so many other temporal things? Why am I killing myself with poison when there's life everlasting set out in front of me? Instead of being that unsettled person with no anchor holding your soul to anything, you're being tossed around Instead of plucking that daisy under that shade tree in your grandfather's back prairie wondering if God loves you or not, why don't you tether yourself to the Word? I'm not trying to rouse you. It's not a pep rally. I'm begging you. Why not tether yourself to God? Why not bind yourself to His Word? Why not put your life underneath the light of the Gospel? Why not live in the shadow of the cross? Look up at the face of a dying Redeemer who's not mad at you, but smiling at you. You're so bad, He had to die for you. He loves you so much, He was glad to die for you. Why not try walking in obedience to His commands that you know you've been disregarding? Why not give yourself to the community? That's just not me. Yes, it will be if you walk with Jesus. Give yourself to community with the people of God. Give yourself to the church. Forsake false teachers. Stop drinking a diet of poison. Don't light more fires in the city thinking it's an airborne disease. Stop smoking tobacco thinking the bubonic plague is going to go away. Go to Jesus and guess what He'll give you? Assurance that He loves you. Because that's the way He designed it to be. And that's what 2 John is all about. Join me as we ask Him to bless this Word. Father, I love these precious ones that You have assembled here and that You have brought to this church family. I already know because I know (laughs) from sweet times of fellowship, how so many of my brothers and sisters receive a word like this. For some reason, it seems, Lord, it's always the most tender, Jesus-loving, prayerful, word-saturated people who feel like this kind of sermon hits the hardest. I just pray that You'll take away that blow and You'll breathe on them the wind of the Holy Spirit. And those tender-hearted Christians would be lifted up again to a higher sight of Your love in Christ. But Lord, for some reason, and You know how to overcome this, but it's the calloused, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, been stuck in a rut for a long time people that this just bounces off like a styrofoam pellet. And I'm praying, God, that You'll give them no rest until they return to Christ. And the people who have been living in carnality and lukewarmness and casual Christianity, God, I pray that today would be a day of new mercy. I'm asking You to break in, to show up, to give no rest until, as the prophet said, Jerusalem again becomes a praise in the land. Cause, as the prophet said, salvation to spring up from the ground. 
Say Isaiah 65, even to a prayerless people, here am I, here am I, declares the Lord. To a people who did not even call on Your name. Come God, revive again Your work in the midst of the years. Show the beauty of Jesus. Show His saving power. His sanctifying power. Come Lord, revive this church. Don't let us drift down anymore the pathway of worldliness and half-heartedness. No, Lord. Come. Meet us. Minister to us. Draw us to Yourself. Show us Your beauty. Cause us to walk in obedience. We long to long for You, Lord. Pull back the veil and let us see Your love. That though we were enemies, we're now astonishingly seated at Your table as Your friends as your family. Yes, Jesus, thank You. Thank You, Jesus. We're here to praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.